Am I on? Yes. Okay. My name is Bob Peruca, and I have been a member at Branch of Hope for 13 years, and I've been a deacon for six years. And it's uh, been my pleasure to serve and to continue to serve as a deacon. Um, Jimi Hendrix? Um, I enjoy the teamwork and the camaraderie of the uh, deacon board, and this really is a great group of guys. Um, I love my brothers. Um, as I walked in here today, um, it was interesting. I felt like I was a backup quarterback, and uh, I was walking into the locker room, and they were trying to keep me loose. You know, everybody's telling jokes, and, and um, I was like, okay. So Dan's telling me to just be myself, right? And I've got another friend up north saying, hey, you know what? It's serious. It's the word of God. <laughs> got to preach through it. Got to be orderly, thoughtful. I'm like, okay, so you'll probably get a hybrid today. <laughs> um, I also wanted to mention that uh, my wife Linda and I are honored that I'm being considered for the office of elder. The uh, book of Genesis states that in the marriage covenant, the man and the woman will become one flesh. And Linda, uh, if this opportunity for me to become an elder comes to pass, will be a vital part of this ministry. So I am thankful that she is on board with me. So as I stand here this morning, I cannot help but think of our dear brother, Clay Atkinson, who uh, gave his first sermon at Branch several years ago. I recall him standing here looking out and commenting that it was uh, a bit daunting to see so many faces. I mean, Pastor Paul, 50 years. I've known you my entire adult life. My friend Dean is here, 40 years, UCSB gauchos. Don't reveal. Um, it's just, it's, it's daunting. It's, uh, it's uh, almost overwhelming. So now, uh, as I think of uh, Clay and the uh, message he gave, uh, I know how he feels. So... I would ask you to, uh, right now, pray for me and with me. Father God, thank you for this day you've given us, another day of life in the world which you have created and you currently sustain. We are thankful for your grace and mercy that we can still worship you freely in this country. In a world where the good news is suppressed and fellow believers are oppressed in many places, we would ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word of truth that the words I'm about to speak today would be correct and edifying to all who hear this message. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we are in Acts 8, 26 through 40. Uh, Philip and the Ethiopian. And I've entitled the message today, Do You Understand? Now hear the word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. 
Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Thus far, the reading of the Word of God. So, it's really hard to get our our minds and our hearts around the idea that this happened 2,000 years ago. So, it's important, I think we understand the context of this story. And preparing for this exhortation has given me a new appreciation for the book of Acts, which takes up the history of Christianity after the resurrection of Jesus, and it carries this history forward for some 30 years. And because of the missionary work of the apostles, especially the apostle Paul, the good news spread from Jerusalem, southward to the present-day North Africa, northward to Syria, northwest to Turkey, and then continues westward to the Balkans and Italy. And at the end of Acts, the apostle Paul proclaims the good news in the heart of the Roman Empire, with the acquiescence of Roman authorities. It's an amazing story. During this period, Christianity was opposed by the local Jewish authorities at every turn. Stephen, who was a completely innocent man, was stoned to death. The apostle Peter is thrown in jail repeatedly for the crime of preaching the good news about the Messiah. The apostle Paul is chased, imprisoned, beaten, and harassed throughout his entire Christian life. So from an initial group, of 12 apostles handpicked by Jesus, selected from the lowest rungs of society, and led by the Spirit of God, sprung this worldwide religion that covered the earth like leaven working through dough, growing like the mustard seed into a beautiful plant. The birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus had indeed turned the ancient world completely upside down. Now, Christianity it's important to note, is grounded in this historical reality, encompassing a real material world created by God, a real space, time, fall of humankind, and a real hope of redemption based on the promises of God. And if anyone is doubtful of the veracity of Luke's historical narrative tracing these acts of the apostles, consider the fact that Luke is respected as one of the great historians of antiquity. F.F. Bruce points out that Luke's narrative, in fact, is a source book of the highest value for the history of civilization. Sir William Ramsey, who originally set out to disprove the archaeology of the Bible, comments that Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed along with the greatest of all historians. So as we dig into this text... 
um, I took Pastor Paul's cue, and I was thinking, okay, so I, I got to first understand the text, and then I got to see what jumps out of me. See, Pastor Paul, I do listen. So number one, the importance of understanding the basic truths of Christianity as a key component of saving faith. That's the first thing I'd like to t- us to take away from, from this uh, message. Secondly, an appreciation for Christ as a suffering servant, as put forth in the Old Testament, and specifically the book of Isaiah. And third, defining joy as it applies to the Christian life and worldview. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay stay with it. Go to that chariot and stay near it. So, who is Philip? We are first introduced to Philip in Acts 6 where he was one of seven Hellenistic officers appointed in the early days of Jerusalem church to supervise the distribution of funds to those who were in need, especially the widows. Philip again appears in Acts 8, 4 through 8, and he's engaged in missionary activity in Samaria and the coastal plain of Judea. Here the Spirit of God was with Philip as he successfully evangelized the Samarians. Now listen to this. The crowds paid attention as one man to what Philip was saying as they listened to him and saw the signs which he performed. And there was great joy in that city. So Philip's evangelism was so impactful that the crowds were just silenced. They were transfixed. And they paid attention to him, his message, as one man. And I can't help thinking, when I was meditating on this idea, the focused attention of Philip's audience in Samaria, I couldn't help thinking of Coach John Featherstone. He was uh, going to be with the Lord just this year. But Coach Feather was small in stature, but larger than life. And I had the opportunity to witness him addressing his players after a football game. And there he was, five foot four, 140 pounds, soaking wet. And he had 50 guys around him. And they were all two to three times his weight. And he commanded their attention. And they were listening to him as one man. So this is, this is what was happening with Philip. Now, Philip's journey is then picked up here in Acts 8.26, where the angel of the Lord, God's divine messenger, commands Philip to immediately leave Samaria, to rise up and to go south to join the Jerusalem-Gaza road, where he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch, most likely who had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem during one of the great festivals. Now, the text indicates that this Ethiopian eunuch was a God-fearer, a person who honored the God of the Jewish people, although he himself was not a Jew. So here is this Ethiopian eunuch with the scroll of Isaiah reading, bumping along on a dirt desert road, reading aloud in the middle of nowhere. And the divine monitor, this time referred to as the Spirit of God, instructed Philip, hey, go approach that chariot. So then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless somebody explains it to me? 
So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So at the direct order of the Spirit, Philip doesn't saunter. He doesn't walk. He runs up in the middle of this desert to this chariot. And this, he hears the Ethiopian reading aloud from the book of Isaiah, and this gives Philip his cue. Do you understand what you're reading? What a great question. I, I heard a sermon on this very passage when I was first investigating Christianity. So Philip's question cut me to the heart. I wanted to know why should I believe in Christ and the Bible as the Word of God? Did these ideas communicated in the Bible, did they even comport with reality? Did they comport with the material world, with what I was experiencing? Did these 66 books hang together as a source of unified truth? Did this ancient text written by over 40 authors over 1,500 years have any relevance to my life? Did it provide the foundation for truth, meaning, value, beauty, justice? Did it have the answer to life's ultimate questions? I mean, what did it have to say about God? What did it have to say about me? Who am I? Who am I to God? What needs to happen for me to be in God's good graces? So ultimately, I wanted to know if the Christian life and worldview was livable. If not, it really didn't mean anything to myself or anyone else. Who cares? But I discovered that even on my best days, when I struggle, Scripture instructs us that the same divine power that created the universe was displayed in Christ Jesus. And he has given believers everything we need to lead a life pleasing to God. So a blind leap of faith into an abyss is not saving faith, my friends. When the Protestant reformers considered this issue, they found that Scripture had three aspects that are essential for saving faith. Now, the first of these is the noticius, which is the information of the rational content of what we're to believe. It's information. We must know correct information about Jesus, the facts about his person and work, if we are to have actual faith in him. The second component of saving faith is the census, or belief that the content of the Christian gospel is, in fact, accurate and true. Is it objectively true or not? Faith is personal, but also the content of our faith has to be objectively true. Christian faith is dependent on the historical reality of such things as the resurrection of Jesus. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. 1 Corinthians 15 through 17. Our faith is not only my faith, but it is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Jude 3. Finally, saving faith includes fiducia, which means placing one's ultimate trust in the person and work of Christ. It means knowing that God has revealed Christ as the Son of God, and we need to believe that it's true. We need to place our trust in Christ personally to save us. So the ultimate result of the saving faith will be a sanctifying affection for Jesus. We will love our Savior, prophet, priest, and king, and that results in the obedience of faith. So the Ethiopian frankly acknowledges that he didn't get it. He didn't understand the passage, yet his heart sincerely wanted to know its meaning. The inquirer who could have found no more qualified and reliable guide than Philip. 
he invites Philip to help him unlock the meaning of this passage. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he did not open its mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. A few months ago, we finished Pastor Paul's series on Ruth 66, examining how every book of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, points to Jesus. And I'm going to quote Pastor Paul here. It is with glorious repetition that we see in a book written 700 years before his birth, allusions and predictions that can only pertain to Christ. The key verse in the Ruth 66 series preached by Pastor Paul is from the mouth of Jesus himself. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. The passage the Ethiopian was reading was a great prophecy of the suffering servant of the Lord, which has found itself in the sacrifice and death of the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah. This passage, Isaiah 53, 7-8, is part of a longer passage. And this passage, along with three other passages, constitute what theologians refer to as a four servant song. So in Isaiah, from the second half to the end, you have these four servant songs that all relate and all refer to Jesus. So let's take a minute to look at these four sections of Isaiah and what they tell us about the Messiah. The first servant song states about the Lord's servant, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. As opposed to the people of God who committed injustices against widows, orphans, and the poor, the Lord's suffering servant would do no such thing. He would execute justice, which would be not only the hope of Israel, but the hope of all the nations. In the second servant song, God will make his servant a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. The suffering servant provides a light of truth in a world of darkness. The third servant song points to the faithfulness of the servant of the Lord, which results in his suffering. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, even in the face of suffering. Jesus does not turn back, but sets his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. And the fourth servant song makes clear that the victory of the servant will be achieved through suffering. He will be marred, beaten, and struck down for the transgressions of his people. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Whether it's the eunuch asking Philip if the fourth song is about Isaiah or someone else, or John the Baptist sending his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or is there another? The significance of these songs cannot be overstated. They reveal the character of the coming Messiah, his compassion, justice, faithfulness, and suffering as a substitute for our transgressions in the presence of a holy, righteous, and just God. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? him or someone else. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before, may have not known the answer to this question, but the prophecy had come true in Philip's day, so he had no problem providing the clear information. 
to the eunuch. This passage was the perfect starting point for presenting the story of Jesus who, to the Ethiopian who had no idea who the, check, the text was referring, to, was referring to. So F.F. Bruce states it thus, It was Jesus and no other who offered up his life as a sacrifice for sin and justified many by bearing their iniquities exactly as had been, been written of the obedient servant. As a historic fact of Jesus' undeserved suffering and death is certain, equally certain is that through his suffering and death, men and women of all nations have experienced forgiveness and redemption. Just as the prophet foretold. So Philip's explanation was clear, cutting right to the heart of the Ethiopian. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So Philip's witness and exposition of the suffering servant who had laid his life down as a ransom for many, penetrated the heart of the Ethiopian. And we're not told in that text that the response of the Ethiopian was repentance followed by true saving faith. However, Philip, the evangelist, as he is referred to in Acts 20, surely qualified his disciple. The Ethiopian repented, believed, and desired to be baptized, and water is spied by the Ethiopian. So his response is, look, Here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? Nothing. The Ethiopian's heart was regenerated. Philip performed the sacrament of baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What a joyous moment. He had new life in Christ. He now understood at the deepest level of his being who he was, who God was, and what God had done on his behalf through the person and work of the suffering servant, Jesus. One of my favorite quotes of Scripture, Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now there's a bit of an Old Testament feel to this story as Philip a la Elijah is taken away by the Spirit of the Lord. Philip's divine purpose was fulfilled. He was now sped northward on another mission. Philip next appears at Azotus, some 20 miles north of Gaza, from where he preached the gospel in all the cities that he passed, until at last he reaches Caesarea. And in Acts 21.8, Philip, the evangelist, appears again, visited by Luke and the Apostle Paul. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. What an amazing life and ministry, Philip had. As for the Ethiopian, he continued on his way with joy filling his heart. According to tradition, this very Ethiopian returned to his native land and he introduced the gospel to Africa. And thus, the beginning of the Ethiopian church. So, as we close our study today, let's take a look at the uh, word joy. Joy and happiness. Interesting to, to contrast the two. Depending on the translation of the word, joy appears in Scripture over 150 times. 
joined the Christian life and worldview is really as a result of obedience to the commands of Christ, which we experience a joy, joy living a Christ-filled life of obedience, honor, and respect for our Savior. His Spirit lives within us. This is joy. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete, John 15, 10 through 12. Secondly, joy is a result of the salvation of our souls. James states, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow, for you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We know not our appointed time with our maker, yet we can have assurance and joy in the midst of this life knowing that we have everlasting life with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit through faith and trust in the person and work of the suffering servant. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. So, as we close today, I'd like us all to consider this uh, wilderness road that we... sometimes feel ourselves beyond. We encounter people of different ethnicities, uh, different backgrounds, different worldviews. And this desert road might be more wilderness than we, would like, when, than we would like, yet we know from the book of Acts that the church in the wilderness can be the church at its best. For God is faithful. Where the Spirit leads, may we follow And may we all experience even a fraction of the joy that our Ethiopian friend experienced almost 2,000 years ago as his heart was regenerated in the saving faith in the person and work of the suffering servant, Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this, uh, this day you've given us. Thank you for your message. Oh, this, this road sometimes, Father, feels like we're lost, and yet we know that uh, you can guide us through your word and your spirit and your truth. Uh, we just thank you for um, your word, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. We pray for your blessing on us this week. Bless everyone here, Father. Bless our country. Shine your light in our hearts, Father. May we treat each other with respect, dignity, and compassion, and love our neighbors as ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.